Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It's good to see you here this morning. My name is Doug, and I am your interim pastor during this uh, journey together with Jesus toward transformation. And I can't believe it, but this morning we are wrapping up a transforming journey in 2 Corinthians. And uh, I'm excited to do that with you. Uh, This next week is Thanksgiving, right? Actually, this week is Thanksgiving, and next Sunday we're going to begin our Christmas sermon series called The Christ of Christmas. Whenever uh, our world thinks of Christmas, it usually starts a little bit before Halloween. Everything gets packed into the stores, Home Depot, everywhere else you go, you're seeing Christmas. And it does, in a sense, bring a skip to the step and a smile to the lips. As as we think about the Christmas carols, we have a rule in my family, no Christmas carols until the day after Thanksgiving. And man, is that hard to do because you hear them everywhere. But decor is getting set up, and uh, we have our favorite Christmas movies we look forward to, and gathering with friends and family, and of course, the Starbucks Red Cup, right? Steve Springstead actually bought this for me last Thursday. I didn't realize it was Red Cup Day. And so he was at Starbucks picking up our order for our directional team meeting, and uh, I said, hey, would you give me a Red Cup? I need it for Sunday. Oh, yeah, no problem at all. He walked into the Ford Starbucks, 27 people ahead of him, because it was Red Cup Day. So they were all there to get it. He grabbed one for me. Uh, And, you know, with all of this wonderful, exciting holiday stuff, there's just... There's just one problem with all of it, and that is we have forgotten how to say the word Christmas. We've actually lost the true meaning of the season because of the way we pronounce it. So today we talk about Christmas carols and Christmas trees, Christmas stockings, Christmas candies. We always go to C's candy, right, for our Christmas stuff. And we talk about Christmas, but Christmas is actually two words. It's the word Christ and the word Mass. Now, it's interesting, if you're from a Catholic background, I have good Catholic friends, they go to Mass, which is the celebration of the Eucharist or celebration of communion. And the word Mass literally means celebration. So when we say Christmas as Christmas instead of Christ Mass, the celebration of Christ, we actually begin to diminish what the season is all about. So what we're going to do for our sermon series uh, for Christmas is we are going to take the next four weeks and think deeply about the Christ of Christmas, or Christ Mass. I should be consistent in this, right? We're going to remind ourselves that when the angel Gabriel came to Joseph and Mary, he said to them, you're going to have a baby boy, and he's going to have four titles, four main descriptions of who he is and what he's going to do. And each of those titles is packed with significance. They are filled with meaning as to who Jesus is, who Christ is. And we find all of those titles in Matthew and Luke. So over the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at those two Gospels and look at the four titles of the Christ child and remind ourselves of Christ Mass, why it's so important to celebrate it. By the way, before we get into the message, I want to thank all of you who have been giving to Advent Conspiracy. I get so excited when I see videos like this and think of the projects that we have and how we not only get to give, but we get to go. So in January, we're going to be talking about engaging locally with these ministry opportunities to present the gospel, and Mindy talked today about one of the ways to go. The other thing that is uh, something we want to share with you this Christmas season is an update on the overall church finances of Trinity Campus and the ministries going on here. Some of you, hopefully a lot of you, got a text this week. We're trying out a text system. 
that says, hey, we have an email we'd love to have you look at, and then a follow-up text that actually gave a link to the email with the financial status for Trinity. And so we, we hope you got it. We hope you take time to read it and prayerfully think about, God, how can I increase my worship of you here at this ministry, this church, this campus, and see Trinity continue to thrive? So if you didn't get it, by the way, you can go to our website. On the very first page, scroll to the bottom, there's a place to sign up for the e-news that will give you updates on the life of the church. And the letter is out at the Start Here booth, so if you want to grab one of those financial update letters, we'd love to have you do that. For now, let's take a minute and pray, and then we're going to get into the last chapter of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13. Would you join me? And let's talk to the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, uh, I have been changed in my thinking by this time in your word. Just going through 2 Corinthians, it's actually not one of the more popular um, books of Paul because it's, it's deep and it's challenging. And uh, we love the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 and so many other passages, but Father, you have led us to this transforming journey with Jesus together to really look at our life and our faith, who we are in Christ, and how you want to dwell in us. And Father, as we come to this concluding chapter, I know Paul's heart for the Corinthians was that they would just really hunker down and say, okay, we've had a lot of good truth. What are we going to do with it? How is this going to change us? And so, Father, today as we uh, look at this very short and simple chapter with its, just its main idea of what are you going to do? How are you going to uh, handle this? How are you going to be real? Father, help our hearts to be open to your Spirit. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move us, comfort us, encourage us, challenge us. Father, convict us as your people because we want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. So we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So every Tuesday morning here on campus, our staff meets for prayer at 9 o'clock. And I love the fact that we do that. We get to sit together over in M102 and uh, just pray about the life of the church, about you, about things that are happening in our world. Uh, but before we do that, we have the coffee shop opened at 8 o'clock. And you can go by there and uh, order anything that you would like. It's really amazing. Uh, we have some great baristas here in our church, Bill Bourne, um, Sherry Skubik, Steve Springstead, Gwen Frankian. And they'll be in the coffee shop and... and, and you can walk up and say, hey, I would like, and give them your Starbucks order, and they'll come up with it. Um, this last Tuesday, I had an early meeting at Panera, so I'd already had my coffee. So I arrived about 8.30, and uh, everyone was sitting at the picnic table there. Bill was there. He was the barista of the morning, and he jumps up, and he says, hey, Doug, what do you want? I said, I'll just, I'll just get some water. Uh, just tell me how to do that in, inside the coffee shop. I've never been in there. So he pointed to the blue spigot and said, yeah, just grab your your water right there, and so I went into the, the coffee shop, and I suddenly felt this sense of empowerment. <laughs> it's like, so this is what it's like to be a barista, you know, and, and I'm, I'm pouring the water for myself, and I turned around, and right at that moment, Rose and Sarah come walking up, ready for coffee, and without thinking, I said, hey, what do you guys want? And they, uh, are you for real? Like, you're not known for making coffee. Do we want to entrust ourselves to you? And for just a moment, for just a moment, I thought, go for it, Doug. Just, just be the barista. Pretend, you know, they'll never... Well, they probably would know very quickly <laughs> the moment they gave me their order. And uh, 
And so I said, no, no, I'm, I'm not for real. Uh, I'm just here to get my water uh, because food poisoning is no laughing matter. And, uh, and I'm not a barista by heart or by training. So why am I telling you this story? Well, it's because this same kind of thing was happening at Corinth. Uh, not the coffee thing, but the counterfeit thing. So if you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them to 2 Corinthians 13? Because we see in Corinth, in this final chapter, a group of people, people who are claiming to be baristas of Jesus. But they're not. They actually have never made a good cup of spiritual coffee in their entire lives. But they're kind of living out to what they think the role is. They're claiming to be disciples of Christ, but they've never turned their lives over to him. And this became clearly evident to Paul. He's been writing this entire book to say, folks, the way you're acting is not Christ-like. Let's change that. And he says to them, are you for real? Or are you just counterfeiting the Christian life? Uh, does the Holy Spirit dwell in you, or are you just faking it? Is, is there real evidence that you're in the faith, or are you just kind of blowing a lot of hot air? And he asks these questions because he cares so deeply for them. And God asks these questions of them because he cares for them. In fact, these are questions that I believe the American church, the Western church, needs to ask as well. In fact, it's interesting, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, uh, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, uh, wrote about this chapter, and here's what he said. The Apostle Paul now turns to the necessity of self-examination, and he states in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 this, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Now he goes on to say they had been testing Paul, and now he turns the table on them, and twice emphatically, if you notice the very first verse of 2 Corinthians 13, the Greek says, examine yourselves, test yourselves. In fact, in the Greek, the yourselves is the very first word, yourselves, examine. He goes on to say, he uses that word in the emphatic position twice. When we read test ourselves or examine ourselves, we're saying something that we need in the United States of America and in fact the Western world there are literally millions of professing Christians who need to pay attention to this statement of the apostle. They've entered into a shallow commitment to Christianity. They've joined the church. They've been baptized. They've done other things that might make them think they're genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they've been encouraged to think that by the people who have not been careful to point out that there is more to becoming a Christian than subscribing to a statement of faith, responding to a simple gospel presentation. And he says, in reality, they don't hate sin. They don't love holiness and sexual purity. They don't pray. They don't serve. They don't pursue, pursue the unity of the church. They don't study the word of God. They don't walk humbly with God. These individuals, so many of them, stand in the same danger in which the Corinthians stood of failing the test. And so the apostles' words, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith, Examine yourselves are valid words that each of us should ponder. I think he's right. In our American culture today, it has become very simplistic, very easy to, quote, become a Christian. But Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13 a challenge. And he says to all of those at Corinth, and he would say to all of us here this morning, and to all Christians globally, take the test to see how real and genuine your faith is. 
I bet you wondered when I was going to take a sip of that, didn't you? I've been holding it too long. Please understand, and I do want to be clear on this, Paul is not communicating that a person can lose their salvation. God is so clear. Paul wrote repeatedly about this whole idea of uh, grace and faith. He says uh, in the New Testament, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So what he's communicating here in 2 Corinthians 13 is the need to affirm that we are in the faith or to discover we need to have a saved condition occur in our lives. That's interesting. James writes about this in James chapter 2. We'll put this up on the slide so you can see it. But James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, they're lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Theologians used to pit Paul against James because Paul was so strong by, by grace through faith alone. And James would write, wait a second, you've got to have the evidence of that faith if you're going to say you're truly in the faith. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul welds those two together and he says, faith will save us from our sin, but when it does, it produces good in and through us. So the need for such a test in Corinth was created by the crisis in Corinth. So if you look back into the book, you remember that there are divisions and unrest in the church that just begged for the test. If you go back into uh, the earlier chapters, sexual impurity and, and pornography in the church cried out for the test. There was critical spirits and gossip and slander and, and pushback against the spiritual authorities, and that pleaded for the test. And the reluctance to care for the needs of others in Jerusalem and there in Corinth insisted on the test. And so Paul says, it is time to finally pull back the curtain and see what is on the stage of your heart. Let's take a look at that inner reality. And in this chapter, he lays out a test that every one of us should uh, take to know if we are truly a Christian. Now, this is also the time of year at Biola when I'm giving tests. And so the students get out their number two pencil. So if you do that this morning, uh, you should have a pen or pencil in front of you. Uh, they also want to know, hey, is there a study sheet for the test? You got a crib sheet that we can use? And thankfully, there is a crib sheet, a study guide for this test. We're going to throw it up onto the screen right now. Here are the things that you need to know to take the test. Number one, Jesus will never allow his uh, church to continue in sin. Jesus will never allow sin to continue in the church. He's dedicated to that. So the test is necessary. Secondly, we find this in verses 5 through 10. Self-examination is our part in not allowing sin to continue in the church. So the test is self-administered. Don't you love that part? And number three, encouragement is the outcome for those who pass the test. So the test truly is affirming and it is helpful. So having said that, let's get into the text. 2 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 4 tell us, Jesus will never allow sin to continue in his church. Paul writes, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, I warned them now while absent, as I did while present on my second visit, 
that if I come again, I will not spare them. By the way, the word uh, not spare there is a military term. I will not give mercy on the battlefield. He says, this is it. I'm, I'm coming to you, and we're going to draw a line in the sand. Verse 3, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, and they were. Are you really an apostle of Christ? We're not sure about that. He, now notice the he, Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Christ is the one who will not allow sin to remain in his church. Verse 4, for he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, and that's what you're seeing in me is this compassionate, gentle, kind person who gives control to God and doesn't demand it himself. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So Paul has been dealing with all of these accusations coming from this church. And they've been saying, you're not Jesus' spokesman. Uh, You are not a spiritual authority. And by the way, you're a really poor speaker and a weak leader. Kind of timid. Their words are recorded for us in 2 Corinthians 10.10 where they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. So the pushback from these folks against Paul um, was disrupting the church unity. It was damaging the church growth. And it was a control for the truth in the church to run things their way or Paul's way. And it's disrupting the church unity. Look back to 2 Corinthians 12, 20 through 21. This was last week. Paul describes their lives and the outcome of believing the wrong thing and following the wrong people. He says, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and you may not find me as you wish, that perhaps there may still be, it's a present tense verb, there may still be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over those of, uh, over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. James echoes this in James 3.16. He says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So Paul and James agree together. They say, hey, look, when people are jealous for their own way, and demanding of their own desires in any and every relationship, and even the church, especially the church, it always opens the door to Satan's Pandora's box of evil, of disorder, and wrong practices. And so Paul has patiently visited with them, he's counseled with them, he's written to them, and now he is done. And he says to them, it's time to stop cutting bait and fish. So... Let's take a look at what we need to do, he says. Now, he quotes here Deuteronomy 19, 15. And this is to drive his point home. And look at what he says. Deuteronomy 19, 15 is is repeated by him. He says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, for any wrong, in connection with any offense that he has committed. You cannot take someone to court for a criminal offense with one witness. You have to, Moses writes, uh, on the inspiration of God, have the evidence of two or three witnesses for any fact to be established. Paul looks at that statement 
which, by the way, Jesus repeats later on in Matthew 18, and he says to them, look, every visit that I've made with you has been a witness. When I came in Acts 18 and I talked about the gospel and some of you believed and others opposed me, there was a witness established as to your behavior. In 2 Corinthians 2, when I talked about this second painful visit where I came to you and, and we talked about the gospel and how to live and there was even more pushback, that was the second witness. And now I'm coming to you again for the third time. And this will be the third witness against you, one way or the other. I'm calling you to account. It is time to face the consequences of your actions. John MacArthur puts these thoughts together for us. He writes in his commentary in this, in this section, there are three sins that trigger church discipline process. And I thought it was interesting he actually limited it to three, but this is based on the biblical text. First of all, he says, serious doctrinal error. And you notice 1 Timothy 1 where Paul writes, I handed these men over to Satan to learn to not blaspheme. That is incredible correction. He takes them and says, Satan, you can have your way with them until they learn to not take the truths of God and misuse them. Wow. Secondly, sins that threaten church unity. Titus 3, Paul writes, warn a contentious person once, warn them twice, and then have nothing to do with them. Separate yourself from familiarity, from intimacy with people who are continuing to disrupt the unity of the church. And then thirdly, issues of sexual purity. 1 Corinthians 5 where a man was having uh, sexual relations with his mother-in-law, and he says, purge the evil person from among you. And MacArthur writes, the time for grace, mercy, and patience was over. There would be no more warnings. When he came again, Paul would deal with the sinners at Corinth. If they failed to repent, they would find Paul not to their liking when he visited. As a faithful parent, Paul could not leave his spiritual children in a state of disobedience. He had to discipline them and bring them to the place of obedience and blessing for God's glory, for the church's purity, the sinning believer's well-being, and the gospel witness, Paul did not hesitate to confront sin in the churches under his care. Think back for a minute to the last time you were in a grocery store or a restaurant or a park and you witnessed the behavior of a child who was allowed to do anything and everything they pleased. Remember how it just puts everybody on edge? watching how this child is just screaming and acting out, and you're thinking, where's the parent? And then you realize the parent's there, and they're just kind of letting them go. And you think, that's not love. That's not beneficial. I mean, this kid's going to grow up and have a hard time forming close relationships and getting along with people in any kind of setting. And Paul does the same thing here. Now, here's the point of this very first uh, aspect of the test. Verses 3 and 4. Paul says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Paul says, look, I know I've been deputized by Jesus, but he's the sheriff and I'm the deputy. I have authority, but he's the one who actually exercises the law. He's the one who exercises Discipline. So, folks, if I have to come to you here in Corinth again, it's not going to be me metting out the discipline. It's going to be Jesus Christ himself. And yes, he, it's true, he was weak when he died for our sins. He willingly gave control of his life up to God and to others. But he didn't remain that way, and he is powerful among us today. 
And I think when churches talk about church discipline, this is really such an important uh, understanding. It is not the church and its leadership who are ensuring the purity of the church. It is ultimately Jesus who is dealing directly with his rebellious people, and we know this because of Revelation 2 and 3. When Jesus comes to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and he says to each one of them, I love this about you, but you got to fix this. And if you don't, I am coming. And time and again, he is the one who exercises this authority, exercises this disciplinary uh, practice. And in fact, we're going to put Matthew 18 up on the screen in just a minute. Jesus himself, when he was alive and ministering, talked about this. And we're going to talk about this practice where it says, where two or three witnesses are gathered in my name, there I am gathered with them. What do you think of when we typically use that verse? A prayer meeting, right? Oftentimes, I'll ask people, what does that mean? Oh, it's when we gather together in the name of Jesus to pray for something. He's among us. Well, actually, Jesus had a much different interpretation and meaning for that. Look at these verses. Matthew 18, verse 15 begins, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So it's very interconnected, interpersonal, between you and him alone. That's the first step. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It's obvious he's a follower of Christ. He is uh, submitting to the truth of God's word. He's recognizing, recognizing his sin, and he is listening, and the relationship has been restored. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you. Now, this is Deuteronomy 19 again. That every fact may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Recognize he probably is not a Christian. He's a Gentile still. He's he's not been brought into the faith. He's, He's this tax collector kind of guy who's outside of the faith. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three, so here's the same witnesses, Agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three witnesses are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Notice three things about this passage. As we think about Jesus having the authority to cleanse his church. First of all, this passage is not about a prayer meeting. It's about Jesus being present with the church as they pray about this specific sin that has erupted in the life of the church. Secondly, you need to notice that the church has the responsibility to make the judgment call. He brings it to the church. He brings it to the leaders of the church. And and they're looking for true Christian behavior. And whatever they decide, he says, that will be recognized in heaven itself. Now, that's a powerful statement. God has given the authority to the local church leaders and to the church to take the word of God and say, this behavior is wrong, it needs to change, and if it doesn't, we are treating them as a non-Christian, and God says, I will recognize that. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So God trusts the judgment of godly spiritual leaders, and he stands on the side of a pure church. And notice thirdly, Jesus is among these Christians, and he's exercising his authority While they are gathered to make this decision, verse 19 and 20, he says, If you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for them by their Father in heaven. I am among them where two or three witnesses are gathered in my name. Let's pause for a second. Because I find this incredibly sobering. 
to realize that this body, the body of Christ in our world today, has been entrusted to spiritual leaders. Wherever Paul went, he set up elders. And he said, you guys are in charge. Acts 20, he charges the Ephesian elders. You've got, you got to be careful. You have to think about the life of the church. So he entrusts that. What were the deputies? The sheriff is Jesus himself. And Jesus is serious about sin, and he will never allow it to continue. People can be handed over to Satan to be influenced by his world. They can be purged from among the church. Uh, we even find in 1 Corinthians 5 and 11 that when people didn't recognize Christ in the communion, he says it is because you failed to recognize Christ being the essence of communion that some of you are ill and some of you have actually died. Wow. That's serious church discipline. But it is Jesus who is evidencing this. The message translation is a good one in this uh, particular area. It says, you who have been demanding proof that Christ speaks through me will get more than you bargained for. You'll get the full force of Christ. Don't think you won't. This is powerful stuff. That Christ is the one who will not allow sin to continue in his church. The second thing is the self-examination. So look at verse 5. It's on the heels of this reality that Paul says, examine yourselves. Knowing that Christ is holding us accountable to his word, to his truth, to his purity, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may do no wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test because you're following our uh, commands, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Even if it looks like we're not doing our job, if you do the right thing, it's the good thing. Verse 8, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your, and notice this last phrase, your restoration is what we pray for. That's what the grade is of the test. Are we restored? For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. This test is unequivocal. He mentions it twice. It's not something that we should skip or um, uh, avoid or even refuse in any way. It's something we should welcome. We should not want to avoid it because... The goal is to see if we are truly Christians and to be restored in our relationships. And this is really, really important that we know if it's authentic or not. I don't think I know of anybody who wants to buy something and find out later on it's bogus. You know, a knockoff. I was given an angel's hat years ago. Now, being in this area, I'm becoming more of an angel's fan. I was San Diego Padres, and I still root for them, but... I was given this hat, and um, it's signed by Mark Trumbo. Now, he was with the Angels from 2010 to 2013. This is actually the 50th anniversary hat, uh, 2011. And uh, I keep it in my closet. I hardly ever wear it because I'm thinking, gosh, this is a signed, autographed, authentic Angels hat by Mark Trumbo, Right? Now, I, I was reading some statistics this week about how authentic our autographed sports memorabilia. 
the FBI says that 70 to 90% of them are knockoffs. Gosh, that's a shame. <laughs> it was a gift. I didn't pay for it. But I'll tell you this, if I had paid a lot of money for this and somebody said to me, oh, that's just a fake. It's just a, you know, a knockoff. It's a counterfeit. I'd be a little upset, wouldn't you? That's still a nice hat. Still something nice to wear. Fits well. But if it's not real, I don't want to spend the money for it. The same thing is true of our Christian faith. If, if we have an idea about Christ that is not true, and in the Corinthian church they were pre- being presented with a false gospel of how do you come to know Christ? What does it mean to know Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? They were getting the, the fake counterfeit truth. And Paul is bringing to them the gospel, the real gospel, that is so important because that alone will transform them. That alone will give them access to an eternal destination of heaven. So it's so important that we get it right. Because I don't want to have believed the wrong thing and end up finding out it was wrong the moment I die. I don't want to end up finding it's wrong when I try to live life transformed and I can't. I'm just, it's my own abilities, nothing's working, something's wrong. So Paul gives us a test here. You ready for it? Get your number two pencils out. Hopefully you have a sermon handout there. We're going to put the three test questions up on the screen for you. And as we go through them, just think about your life. Examine yourself. I've been doing that this week for myself because Paul says he is not exempt from the exam. Test question number one. Is the Holy Spirit in you? Is the Holy Spirit in you? Verse 5 gives the command to examine ourselves, and then it says, Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? When it talks about Jesus Christ being in you, we know he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But Paul throughout the the New Testament and in his Gospels, keeps saying, folks, the moment a person completely understands that Jesus is Lord and Savior, the Christ, the supreme commander. And folks, it may take time before we or a person who's hearing about Jesus gets there. When the Philippian jailer finally came back to Paul and Barnabas and said, what must I do to be saved? Do you remember his response? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. But then it goes on to say, and Paul spoke the word of God to him, and he believed. There was a basis of content there, of what it means to follow Jesus, of who he is. He is the Lord. He is master. He is Jesus, God in flesh. He is Christ, the Messiah. He calls us to a life of difficulty and suffering. He calls us to a life of repentance and emptying ourselves. He calls us to a life of caring for others, the lost and the least. He calls us to all of this, and then he says, will you believe? So it's not as simple as just, here's a couple things and go for it. We have to understand who is Christ, who is Jesus, and embrace that. And and Paul says the moment that we have that understanding, and we have processed it, and we've thought about, he's got to become master of my life. He's got to become God in my life. And I'm not just asking him in, I'm joining up for the kingdom of God. 
I'm stepping up to change the way I live, to be a different person, to say it's no longer me, but Christ in me, as Galatians 2.20 says. The moment we agree with God, hey, I'm separated from you, I'm un- I am unholy, I am sinful, I have got attitudes and perspectives and actions and words that have been wrong. And God, I am so sorry for those, I repent. I change my mind about who I am and who you are. I know that without you, I'm headed for hell. And when we confess our sins to God and we ask for his forgiveness and cleansing and we know who he is and we know we're joining the kingdom of God, he's not just joining us. At that moment of surrender, God sends the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to indwell us. Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you Gentiles have become his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, and now you can call God your dear father. So the Holy Spirit actually indwells us, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God. John 16 goes even further, and he says, I have a lot more to tell you, but that would be too much for you now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the full truth. He won't speak on his own. He'll speak what he hears, and he'll tell you about things to come. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, but you are not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit since the Spirit of God dwells in you. So test question number one. Does the Spirit of God dwell in you? Does the Holy Spirit reside in you? Have you taken the time to confess your sins, taken the time to understand fully who Jesus is, the life that he calls us to? Fishers of men. Putting aside the nets, putting aside the boats, and saying, all right, I'm all in. This is for me. I'm going to be your servant I'm going to follow you to the point of suffering and even death. Test question number two. Is your daily behavior reflective of his presence? We see that in verse 7, where it says, But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. The word wrong there is evil. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Do you do evil or good? Paul had two key phrases that he used with Christians. The first was, are you in Christ, right? Are you in Christ? The second one is, is Christ in you? And they're a handshake in the scriptures. Are you in Christ? Is your position, your standing in him? Is your experience as a new Christian all that he is, all that he has for you, all of his promises, all of his power, all of his his uh, uh, perspective on life. Are you in Christ? And secondly, is Christ in you? Is there this, not just a a standing, uh, not just a position, but is there a practice, is there a behavior occurring out of your life because you are in Christ and Christ is now in you? Let me give you an illustration of what that looks like. Since COVID, 1.6 million Americans have moved to Mexico. Did you know that? And Mexico is angry about it. It's true. Because we bring with ourselves an affluence and a perspective that raises the cost of living for most Hispanic people in Mexico. And, and so there's this, this thing going on in Mexico where they're, they're upset that their economy is changing, but Americans are saying it's a lot less expensive to live down here. Now, the interesting thing is they are now in Mexico, Right? much like we would be in Christ. And they're beginning to experience everything that Mexico is. It's a beautiful country. It's wonderful people. Mexican food every day. I'm a little jealous of that. (laughs) But in time, Mexico is in them. 
They began to learn new language skills, new celebrations in the social culture. They begin to um, look at life a little differently because of the community that they're in. And so Mexico actually begins to come into them in a way that would not have happened if they were not in Mexico. And the same thing is true for Christians. If we will be in Christ, we are immersed in the person of Christ, all that he is and has and does for us. Everything that is through Christ becomes ours. But then the question is, if that is real, Christ begins to live through us. You see how that works? And so Paul has this handshake back and forth. You are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, is Christ in you? And he wants to know the answer. That's why he's so concerned for the Corinthians, because he doesn't see Christ in them. He doesn't see this change of heart, this change of mind, this way of living that is now Christ-like. He just still sees the old flesh working itself out. And so he says, hey, is Christ in you? And then thirdly, the third test question, is your life supportive of or combative toward his truth? Verse 8, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We could phrase this differently. Do you accept God's correction or do you resist it? When the truth of God is made known, do you push back or do you embrace it? And we know if the Holy Spirit is in us by how we embrace the truth. That's how we know that he is present in us, by whether we welcome it and celebrate it and live it. Galatians 5 is one of my favorite Bible passages. Actually, I have too many to say it's my favorite, or it's one of my favorites. But we're going to put it on the screen, and I want you to notice what's going on in this passage. Paul is writing the same concepts to the Galatians. And he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, your natural tendencies, your natural way of life. It says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. He's essentially saying our default setting is to follow our natural human desires. That's how we are in our broken state. But the Spirit pushes back against that. He opposes that. He literally goes to war against our fleshly desires. And, and they duke it out inside of us. We have the old flesh. We have the new nature that Paul writes about. Which one will win? Look at verse 19. He says, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and then he says, and things like this. This is not a complete list, folks, but it's things like this. And he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's important to notice there that the verbiage is those of you who continue in the practice of these things. It's true that a Christian can fall into these things from time to time but we don't persist in it. But he says, if you're an individual who's constantly seeing the same sin, and it doesn't change, and you continue and you persist in it, you are not a Christian. You are not in the kingdom of God. Wow. 
So I need to pay attention to this test. Let's grade our tests for just a minute. Are these the kind of things happening in my life in an uncontrolled, unchanging manner? Is there a porn problem? That's long-standing. Do we dwell on sensual, impure, or sexual fantasies? Is my life open to demonic influences through idolatry and sorcery? Has Satan got a foothold in my life through astrology or tarot cards or Eastern mysticism or materialism? Am I at odds with other people? Do I have ongoing enmity and strife, anger, division, dissension with others? Do I want what other people have? Or am I envious? Am I jealous? Is alcohol a problem? Are my actions out of control sexually or in any other way in my life? And Paul writes, dear friend, if this is true, you are not in the faith. And this is why Paul warns us, and he warns them that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.22 gives the solution to the problem. I'm thankful for that. But the fruit of the Spirit is, and my wife should sing the song for us because she has this all memorized. That's one great way to memorize Scripture, by the way, by music. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And Paul says, against such things there is no law. These are puristic, wonderful, broadly accepted realities. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So the Spirit of Christ in us produces this way of life. It flows out of us. Not because we're good at it, but because the Spirit is good at it. And He indwells us. We have passed the test of entering into the kingdom of God through our repentance and our perception of Jesus, our giving Him mastery over our lives. Take me, use me, fill me, is the old hymn. And look at verses 9 and 10. The goal of all of this affirmation is to restore our relationships. Think about in your life, whatever setting it might be, where a relationship is disrupted. Where conflict has occurred and you still feel at conflict. And maybe even you've been able to reconcile it somewhat, but when you think about it, those same feelings come back up again. Or maybe that other person has been unwilling to be reconciled, and so you're still wrestling, how can I get this done? Paul says the goal of this test, the goal of this entire book is to bring about restoration. He says, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in the use of my authority that the Lord has given me. For building you up, not tearing you down, I don't want to do a remodeling job. I want new construction. And that's why he ends this section verses 11 through 14, with this final part of the exam. He says, encouragement is the outcome for those who pass the test. And I'm so thankful he ends this whole book and this chapter with these words. 
Listen to them. He wants to encourage us in our faith. He wants to say, if you have followed Christ and you're in Christ and he's in you, then there's reason to be encouraged. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That was one of my favorite high school verses. But... My mom kept saying, Doug, holy, holy kiss. And of course, in the Middle East, this is a kissing on the cheek. Men would kiss men on the cheek. Women would kiss women on the cheek. But for those who had been alienated from God and alienated in culture, to be welcomed into a body of believers and to be hugged and kissed on the cheek was a a huge thing. Now, in the American church, we would translate it, greet everyone with a warm hug. Because that's what he means. It's this sense of you belong here. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's how he ends this great book. But notice the staccato reminders for us. People who have been in conflict who don't want to stay there. Rejoice. Cheer up. Take heart. Aim for restoration. Mend. This literally means mend your nets. It's what Jesus would say to his disciples when they had been fishing and needed to Clear up the nets and clean them up. Mend your nets. Restore them. Put them back in order. Set right what was wrong. Comfort one another. Don't lose heart. Look forward to better days. Lift each other up. Agree with one another. Live in harmony. Get along with each other. Stop being so touchy. Live in peace. Bind together what has been separated. Stop being divided. Come together. And he says when Christians do this, the love and the peace of God is with them. How many of you would say, God is always with the church? Can I see your hands? Yes, we should all have our hands up. God is always with the church. He loves the church. He died for the church. He lives through the church. But there is a a unique special sense in which God's love and peace comes to a church that has reconciled, that has pulled itself back together, that loves each other, gives each other's warm hugs, says, I forgive and I'm glad to be forgiven. He says, there is a love and a peace of God that is far beyond just the the normal recognition Jesus is with us. Jesus is among us. It is an emotional, powerful presence of God. And literally in the New Testament, it means God will once again bless you. I think we want to be blessed by God. And this is the prescription for it, to feel this tangibly among us. The Message Bible says it this way, and that's about it, friends. Be cheerful. Keep things in good repair. Keep your spirits up. Think in harmony. Be agreeable. Do all that, and the love and peace of God will be with you for sure. I'd like to have you pray with me. So if we could bow our heads for a minute. And as we do, and I know I've gone a little over time, thank you for giving me that extra time, this passage, that extra time. How did you do on the test? Have you actually entrusted yourself to Jesus? Have you recognized who he is, the creator of all things, king of kings, lord of lords, almighty God, come in human flesh to rescue us, you and I, from our sinful condition? That he calls us to a life of discipleship, 
His call to follow him was not empty. It was not something we can pack with our own perceptions. He said, this is what it means to follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow after me. This will be a difficult life. This will be a life of suffering and challenge because you are in the world, but you're not of the world. So if you're willing to follow me, be a disciple maker, one who is no longer living for your own flesh, your own desires, but you are living for the kingdom of God, you are living for the Son of God. If you come to that point and you've realized that and you've confessed your sins to God, God, I am impure, I am unholy, I cannot stand in your presence, I cannot be welcomed by you except by the blood of Christ that has cleansed me from all of my sin. And God has indwelt you with his spirit, then you are in the faith. If you've never done that, if you've never had that perception, if you've never thought through the implications of that call to follow him, to leave everything and to give all to Christ, if you've never repented of your way of life and given him control, which is what Jesus did at the cross, he gave God control, not my will, but yours be done. And he asks that of us. God, not my will, yours be done. I'm in the boat with you from here on out. Wherever you lead, I will follow. I want to give you that opportunity this morning. It's easy to be a professing Christian. It's challenging to be an actual follower of Christ. If you would like to join Christ in his kingdom, he invites you to do that. But it begins with knowing who he is. Who calls you to this? Do you believe that he is the Lord, master of your life? Jesus, the son of the living God, God in flesh. Christ, the Messiah, who has come to save you from your sins. Will you repent of your way of life, your willfulness, self-centeredness? Will you come to him and take his cross upon you to follow him? And he says we do that simply by saying, God, I'm a sinner. I recognize who Jesus is. I want to be his and not mine. I want to be filled by your spirit and not my own desires. Take me. Forgive me. Use me. At that point, at this point, the Holy Spirit enters that person's heart and transforms them in this journey through life that will never again be the same because they will never again be the same. If you prayed that this morning, if you recognized that, understood it, accepted it, may I pray for you. Father, I thank you for Trinity Church, for the powerhouse of love and compassion it has been in this community for all of these years and continues to seek to be that. But Father, we want to come before you and humbly bow ourselves before you and say you are the living Christ. You are the one who gets to tell us how to live. You are the one who gives us the strength and the power and the desire to live in accordance with the Holy Spirit. God, we confess to you that we struggle at times with what we want, our desires, our purposes, our plans. But God, we want to lay that before you and say, please make us a community of followers of Christ who truly seek your will. And Father, unify us. Unify the Christian church. Today, this is the biggest issue in our world today. We are not unified. Refine us, Father. Revive us, we pray. 
We ask this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.